Muirfield is our office. I'm field agronomist Ashley Storby, and with me is field agronomist Jay Zilski. Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic, Ashley, and I think a lot of people in our area are doing great after we had kind of a, a just-in-time rainfall event last weekend when we kind of thought we were kind of on, on the edge of maybe dropping off the cliff as far as some drought stress. Uh, you know, and in and we ranged through that through that rain. We got anywhere from about a half and an inch to, uh, or I should say, inch and a half to just under three inches of rain. There was a small area that got missed, and you know, I happened to check my radar um, as I was getting geared up to uh, to do the podcast this morning, and perhaps some of the areas to to my east, so parts of uh, Leesuer County, Northern Rice, and Dakota counties, it looked like maybe they're going to be getting a shot of rain. Um, it looked like those cells are moving through awfully fast, but hopefully maybe we got a little bit of relief up in that area because uh, crops have been looking particularly tough. I talked to some farmers on uh, Wednesday who are uh, just in around that Jordan area, so that'd be Scott County, and they had received um, about an inch and a half of rain last weekend, and their comment was that had doubled their rainfall since planting. Since planting, not not, oh. since, not since the 1st of July, but since planting. So mm -hmm. that gives you a, a sense of just how dry some portions of the area are, Ashley. Mm, you know, I noticed that on the drought monitor was updated um, recently here. And some of our northern counties showed up as a D1 now. They, I think they'd been sitting at D0 for a while. Um, my Washington County area is awful dry. The corners on our irrigated farms look really tough. I did hear of some spider mite activity on my north side, um, limited limited um, quantities in terms of uh, fields affected, but something to be paying attention to now. Um, and since we're getting down the chute, I thought it was appropriate to do a little reflection on GDUs. And, you know, Jay is the master of preparation. And when he pulls data, he pulls multiple locations. And I, I think it, it makes him cringe a little bit that I like to pull one location and then um, go from there. <laughs> but you know what? I compromised today. So you know what I did? I pulled Waterville because I thought, well, I like to pull Faribault. You're, you're over towards Mankato. I thought, well, we'll meet in the middle and that's a good compromise. So that's what I did. I pulled that for today. Um, so as of GDUs up to date to today from a May 7th planting date, we're at 1812 GDUs, uh, which is 128 over the 30 year average. And that's actually just 28 GDUs shy of last year. And this year we accumulate about 20 GDUs a day in the month of August. So, you know, within a, a day and a half or so of last year. And then we, we regularly make the comparison that we've had a lot of corn in the ground already by May 7th uh, in 2021. But I remember it was so cool. And you know, we were bundled up planting plots. And, and I remember it was a cool start. So I thought, well, let me pull the GDUs that we got last year up until May 7th. There were zero GDUs on where I had tracked it. Isn't that interesting? It is fascinating, actually. Yeah, we got out we got out of that shoot real fast a year ago, but it was just it was so cool for so long. And uh, you know, I think think the thing about the the GDU data you shared is it it's very encouraging considering the way we started the, the season. You know, and, and really what you're seeing as far as the GDUs kind of verifies what we're seeing here as far as crop 
crop development is that it, it, it did manage to catch up and, and for us old timers okay, myself um you know it, it is reminiscent of 1991 so a few years back a few years back a little over what a little over 30 years ago uh we had kind of a similar uh it actually was even wetter start to the season and we managed to catch up um you know the only thing is you know the rest of the story which you'll have to ask me next week is when the first frost hit the year that year because that's the rest of the story oh. i'm not going to share it now oh. i'm not going to share it now yeah. <laughs> suspenseful <laughs> well well it looks like we are now ready to introduce our guest jay would you like to introduce our guest absolutely ashley i'm i'm really excited to uh to talk to our guest today uh university of minnesota plant pathologist dean malvick because you know one of the things i always tell farmers is that August is the month where the wheels start to fall off the soybean crop. It seems like, you know, the, any number of diseases can start to come up during the month of August. And so, you know, no better guest to have than, than an expert as far as a plant pathologist. So welcome to the show, Dean. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. So Dean, as we, as we, before we get started here, tell us, uh, tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. You know, I remember when you first came to the university, if I'm remembering right, you're either originally from Illinois or you were at the university of Illinois, or am I remembering this all wrong? No, you, you, you got parts of it right. And, and so be, I've been at the university of Minnesota in the department of plant pathology. I've been working with corn and soybean diseases primarily since 2005 already. So that's already 17 years. And wow. before that, as, as you were recalling, I was at the University of Illinois, based in Urbana, working also on corn and soybean diseases. So, so I did that for a few years and then moved to Minnesota. And uh, nor originally, though, I'm from northern Minnesota. Really? Where in northern Minnesota? Uh, near Duluth. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's kind of fast. Yes. You know, you can probably lay claim to fame that probably aren't many plant pathologists come from uh, northern Minnesota, I wouldn't think, you know. It's probably true. I don't know <laughs> many. <laughs> you, you, you know, and then, then I can maybe match you a little bit being there's there's very few agronomists, uh, you know, went to YZ High School, the suburban high school, the Twin Cities either. So, uh, you know, enough probably of the... Uh, true. <laughs> Enough of the introductions. Maybe we'll get on to uh, you know today's show, kind of the key focus on diseases. You know, but you know before we get to soybean disease, we've had you know all, you know a lot of questions about tar spot. Um, you know, what's the latest news on tar spot as of as of today, the twelfth of August? Yes, you're right. That's been sort of the hot topic disease in, in Minnesota and, and regionally for now for a number of years. And like all diseases, they're difficult to predict. Okay, but what's the status in Minnesota? Just just to go back a little bit for to remind everyone what's going on with this disease. And it wasn't known in in the uh, United States even before 2015, just seven years ago. It was only known in southern Mexico, Central America, northern South America, and Puerto Rico. And suddenly it appeared in northern Illinois and northern Indiana seven years ago. Nobody knows how it got there, but the main point is it's it's been spreading quite steadily across the Corn Belt since that time, causing significant losses in some years, including last year, 2021, in many areas. Now in Minnesota, we've been on the edge of that spread. So we haven't had many significant problems, but there are fields now in the southeastern part of the state where there are some significant problems with tar spot. 
And so it was first found here in Southern Fillmore County in Minnesota in fall of 2019. And since then it's spread to, I think it's roughly around 23 counties or something. I'll have to count that number again, but it's main point is it's spread as far as, at least as far as St. Cloud area. And so it's spreading and it's still the only areas that are significant as far as we know are the deep Southeast where there tend to be more regular rains and where the disease is established. Now this year, 2022, it's been confirmed in four or five counties, all in the Southeast. And that is not on the national map yet, but it'll appear soon. For those of you that aren't aware of that, there's a map called IPM pipe, corn IPM pipe. And you can look at that, search it up. You can see the current distribution of tar spot, and a num number of other diseases of, of interest. Um, so all the tar spot that I'm aware of so far in Minnesota is at low levels. Um, but again, it's developing in those areas where it's been before. So I think that's a pattern that's pretty significant. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. You know, as where I'm at here in, in South Central Minnesota, so kind of Mankato and then kind of, uh, kind of uh, funnel out towards the north here, and I did have a, a field a couple of years ago, two years ago, they had shown some some tar spot in it. I kind of use that as my, you know, right or wrong. It's kind of my indicator field. Like, okay, I'm going to go back there again. Uh, I haven't seen any uh, in that field or any other fields. But, you know, at the outset, I was just talking about how dry we'd been, how hot we'd been. Yes. And, and, and the thing I, I begin to wonder now is, okay, now we've had some relief from the drought. <laughs> we, we, we've gotten some of these rains, we've gotten these cool temperatures, which are going to be great for, for grain filling the crop, but, you know, could that now trigger some tar spot in the area, provided we have the inoculum? Yes, absolutely. Tar spot is definitely favored by cooler and wetter weather than we've had much this summer. And so there are two, two things, two trends across the countries. The disease is definitely favored when we get those cooler and wetter conditions. And it's also favored later in the corn growth stages. Now, it's hard to know which one's most important there, right? Which one's coming first? Because they kind of happen at the same time. We get the longer dues as we get further and further along in the grain fill. So, but we are now getting into conditions in many parts of the state. Now, this morning, here across a big swath of central Minnesota, it's raining pretty steadily. And uh, that's going to be favorable too. So, back to your point, I think we will start to see it in more places. Hard to say if it'll be at high levels, probably not if we haven't seen it yet, but I think we'll see it in more places. And just thinking back to last year, many of those counties outside of the Southeast where we found it, it wasn't until mid to late September when there was still some late maturing corn out there and after the rains started coming to the, that part of the state. Um, interesting, you, very, very interesting. You know, in one of the things I, I've always, always wondered, and I've, I've seen it maybe late season with you know northern corn leaf blade, other years in gray leaf spot. Yeah. You talk about those environmental conditions, and is there anything to as that plant ages? Is it does it become is it, is it kind of like an old person? 
you, you know, <laughs> where their resistances and, and immune system maybe isn't as strong as it was when that crop was younger and it makes it more vulnerable to these diseases? Or, or am, I, am I just making that up, Dean? No, you're, it's, it's a good hypothesis and there is some support for it. I, I don't know if how much of that explains it, though. I think it's definitely part of it. I mean, part of it obviously is, you know, by that time, we've had a really thick, dense canopy for you know a month, month and a half. And the dews, right? Like you say, the dews are coming and they stay, and corn leaves stay wet some mornings for quite a long time. Even two weeks ago, I was in Rosebound in a field that that is irrigated, but it hadn't been irrigated because the top half inch of soil was, was dry. So it hadn't been irrigated recently. Uh, nine o'clock in the morning, the corn leaves are still wet. And of course, we're even extending that further and further now. So looking back, you mentioned the rains that we had late season last year. And I remember I had, I had reached out to you about the, um, the, the, what it turned out to be a saprophytic fungi that we were seeing very active uh, late last season on the corn where you know we the corn was was turning black the leaves were turning black and it it made equipment really dirty um so we got a lot of questions from our farmers about what is in my corn you know they weren't used to climbing up the ladder and getting their hands all grubby and black from their you know from their equipment and they noticed it on the corn head and i in talking with some of our customers yesterday there was a, a an assumption that that was tar spot could you differentiate for us that experience that we had late season last year versus tar spot? Yes, yes. So late in the season on corn, you know, it's typical to get different kinds of fungi growing on the leaves. Now, like you say, that was unusual last year, how much there was and how widespread it was. So those are fungi that are just essentially growing on the nutrients that are on the surface of the leaf or on the dying leaf tissue as it's senescing. Whereas corn tar spot is a fungus, a disease caused by fungus that actually grows within the tissue. It doesn't produce black spores. The fungus, fungal structure on the leaf is black is where the name comes from, the tar black color but it doesn't produce spores that are black. You cannot wipe it off with your finger. It doesn't come off in a combine when you're mm -hmm. combining the crop. Oh, so there's some distinct differences there. And the other thing is this corn tar spot fungus is, is so-called an obligate pathogen. It only lives on living, grows on living green tissue. It can survive on dead tissue where the saprophytes the ones that grow later, the, the black ones we talked about, those are primarily, they, they can feed on anything, dead tissue, on nutrients that exude from the leaf, anything. They don't need living tissue. Good. I really appreciate that distinction. I, I didn't realize until I had gotten into quite a few customer conversations um, about tar spot this last week, particularly yesterday, we had a learning event in Zimbroda. We happen to have a little bit of tar spot on the edge of the plot. So it it allowed for a really great educational opportunity for identification and, you know, wiping that, that leaf, seeing that it doesn't come off. You don't get anything on your finger. Um, and there were multiple comments about that saprophytic fungi at the end of the season. And, and I really wanted to clarify that because I realized there was a misconception with some of our, our farmers that if that was their experience where they had really dirty combines, um, 
in the in their corn harvest that they had tar spot. So just wanted to to have the the distinction made there, so they're not concerned about that farm and, and managing as if they had had tar spot in the sure. in wow. the past. Um, so uh, looking looking at this season in particular, we have seen a little bit of gray leaf spot. Heard some rumblings about gray leaf spot. Can you share just some quick comments about gray leaf spot before we move on to soybeans? Sure, sure. Now, gray leaf spot until tar spot came along was probably the most significant widespread corn leaf disease across the corn belt. Not in Minnesota, though, but in, I'd say, across the I-80 corridor all the way into, you know, from Nebraska to Ohio and you know, all the way to Virginia. That's been a significant corn leaf disease for a long time. We don't have as much problems in Minnesota because we don't have the levels of humidity that tend to support it. Gray leaf spot really likes warm conditions with very high humidity, above 90%. I mean, for example, when I was working in Illinois, I never saw anything like the tar spot. I mean, excuse me, the gray leaf spot. Like I saw when I went to Southern Illinois, there's a Dixon Springs research station way in the Southern part of the state where it's hot and humid for long periods of time. It's incredible how much would develop. You know, we don't, we get what we feel like is high humidity and it gets uncomfortable, right? But it's not like that farther south for the duration. So that's what we're missing here. That really favors a lot of gray leaf spot. Nonetheless, we do see it in Minnesota, as you noted. Occasionally, it reaches levels that are concerning when we have, again, long periods of a lot of rain, warm temperatures, high humidity. Um, but again, those are rare. We reach high enough levels to be really concerned about it, in my experience. Appreciate that. Um, I, I've started to see a little bit this week, um, particularly on, on some farms that hadn't been sprayed with a fungicide. Um, on the northern side of, of my territory. But before that, earlier this week, last week, I, it was more of a, a treasure hunt to yeah. find any any disease in corn. Yeah. So very yeah. low levels, you know, still at this time. Is that, that's pretty similar in your area, isn't it, Jay? Yes, it is, Ashley. So what, what I found is it's, it's, if you look hard enough, you can always find an occasional gray leaf spot lesion and, and you know it is interesting as, as dean was sharing before just as we get later in the season that's typically i i remember a lot of times i've seen it from about the last week of august into the maybe the second week of of september most years i tend to see some some gray come on uh, and also maybe some northern coming even even in non non bad northern years where you start to see a little northern show up in that period of time and, and a lot of times it's it's interesting because oftentimes you'll find the lesions not always but oftentimes you'll find kind of find them perched on where that leaf apex is on on on, on a corn leaf kind of where it, it 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 flattens out before it droops over and and, and it seems like it stays uh moist there longer and probably we get dew forming there earlier. And, and you know, as, as you go down the slope of the leaf, probably some of that just kind of runs off down towards the leaf axles or off the tip. So a lot of times that's kind of where I've seen it before too. So, uh, you know, so, you know, it doesn't sound yet like then that uh, soybeans are going to have to relinquish their crown as, you know, the, the month, you know, August being the month that the wheels fell off the soybean crop and they don't have to, to turn that over to corn yet. So that's, that's good news for us, but uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, 
uh, soybeans, Dean, because uh, it's been been rather interesting. Probably, I would say, over about the last three or four weeks, um, had some reports and gone on to fields, taken some samples in, in, in soybeans of some areas where beans were commonly kind of in soils or lower lying areas, not necessarily areas because where we had standing water because we haven't had enough rain this year, but some some beans that looked like they were dying off or stunted. And we submitted a, a large number of samples, both to Pioneer's Diagnostic Laboratory and to the University of Minnesota. And you know, very common across those samples has been you know, presence of phytophthora root rot. And, and I think for some that kind of came as a surprise because oftentimes these were one one K gene varieties that you know a lot of folks have thought, well, gosh, isn't that kind of like the silver bullet? Uh, <laughs> and, and also where we had some seed treatments on, and we're still seeing Phytophthora. Um, you know, is 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 that is that what you're seeing? And you know, what's going on out there? Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing we've been hearing about is Phytophthora on soybeans, as you've noticed. In certain areas, the conditions were right. And part of those conditions is very wet soil at, at some point, you know, kind of earlier in the life cycle of that soybean. And the disease kind of shows up at, at different times in soybean. You know, it might kill them very early in you know, early vegetative stages, or it may come on later, like, like you're mentioning. So, so getting at the genes, you know, for a long time, RPS1K, that gene that's resist, that confers resistance to phytophthora root rot, has been an excellent gene and still is in many places. But surveys of the types of the phytophthora pathogen in soils across Minnesota show that that gene is, is breaking down in the sense that the phytophthora population is changing such that it can overcome that gene in more and more fields. Now, Jim Curley from the University of Minnesota did the most recent survey work with that. And it's, it's clear that that's happening in Minnesota and actually almost all states across the Midwest. So, you know, the, 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 there's been some hints of this happening for a while, but I think it's becoming probably more widespread that we need, we need other genes that will confer that resistance. I remember back then with Dr. Curley hearing some of that information, he referred to, you know, I think he said pathotypes, which was a new word for me. And, and, and so is that different than a race of Phytophthora or is, is that a whole nother podcast in and of itself to, to touch on that one? But is, 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 there, is there a quick explanation of what a pathotype is? Yes, it's also a description. Let's say, let's say, I mean, put it this way. It's a label we can assign to a type of Phytophthora that tells which genes that Phytophthora will overcome. Okay. It actually lists the genes. The pathotype might be 1A, 1C, 1K. Whereas in the old days, that might have been race, I'm just making this up, race four. Then you'd have to go to a table and figure out which genes would be effective against race three if you don't have that memorized in your head. The pathotype description is similar to the race description, but it's more useful and descriptive because it tells you exactly what that type of phytophthora can overcome. 
That's that's similar to the HG typing in soybean cyst nematode, the races versus the HG typing. Um, I just yes. I thought that was interesting seeing both both of those um, manners of explaining the the um, pathotype or the race of cyst, um, you know, kind of similar structure. Yes, yes, yes. So, so Dean, what would be your recommendation? You know, what would be your recommendation? How do you suggest we advise farmers to then manage this disease going going forward? Uh, seeing that we're in some cases we're seeing some of these resistant sources maybe not being as effective as they've been before. Yes, yes. Obviously, in the long term, is to you know all, all the seed companies to develop more varieties with other sources of resistance. Now that's a long-term project there are some varieties out there say with rps three or six i don't know what what you have in your lineup right now but i believe you have some of those but certainly probably not in all maturity groups or with all trait packages that somebody would want but in the long term that's part of it the other part of this that is also on everyone's seed label is of course the field tolerance level and that's a really important part of this too the higher that field tolerance the more resistant or tolerant that variety is to any of these pathotypes that might occur in a field. So that's another long-term goal is to continue to increase that, that level of partial or field tolerance. And so then of we... course, go ahead. I'm sorry. And then the last thing, of course, are seed treatments. Okay. You know, yeah, that's where I was going to go. I was going to ask you about seed that as well. Treatments that are quite effective against Phytophthora as, as well as Pythium. Okay. And those are effective you know, especially in the early stages, right? Um, they they might lose efficacy after a month or four or five weeks. Um, and, and for a disease like like Phytophthora that, that can affect the plant for a longer period of time, that might be an issue. Whereas with Pythium, a, a related pathogen, protecting at the very earliest stages is often enough. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm, you know, I'm going to move on now to, to one of those August diseases that typically shows up uh, that being sudden death syndrome. And, and Dean, the thing that's interesting is so uh, known agronomist, he's, he submitted about uh, 11 samples of diagnostic lab. I, I I've submitted um, a, another three so far and out of all those samples, 12 out of those 14 samples showed presence of Fusarium virgiliform or SDS, sudden death syndrome. And, you know, what was interesting is these are from fields that didn't to us show outright SDS, classic SDS type of symptomology. And so, you know, the questions I have is, that, okay, do we always have some of that? there to a certain degree where we're maybe not expressing the symptoms or should we strap ourselves in and get ready because it's coming on here in the month of August and we're going to see some ugly fields over the next couple of weeks. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, answer one might be a little more reassuring than answer two. Just, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we, we've known for a while. Okay. Let's just back up. What is SDS? Just, just review that a little bit. It's a fungal disease caused by Fusarium virgiliformi, this fungus that you mentioned. It infects the roots. Probably most of the infection occurs within two weeks or three weeks after that seed germinates in the spring. And but we don't typically see the foliar symptoms that that we we 
associated with the disease until August, like you noted. And that would be intervenal chlorosis, yellowing, and then ultimately brown dying tissue. So it can be a root disease independent of the foliar disease. And, and it is, you know, through much of the season, I think. And I've seen cases where C treatments, for example, that are effective against SDS provide a benefit even though we didn't get foliar symptoms. Um, so the main, I guess, to really answer your question, to, to follow it up, yes, SDS can be a root disease by itself and cause some damage to the plant without causing leaf symptoms. But the most damage comes, as you might guess, when we have the leaf symptoms too. Now, some of the things I've read in the past, if I'm remembering this right, Dean, is that some of the literature I've read in the past said, you know, that that oftentimes symptomology, above ground symptomology will flare up if we've experienced a period of, of dry weather, <laughs> which we've had in our area, and then get, you know, uh, a good rainfall event. And all of a sudden now we're getting a lot of water moving up into the plant. And, and, and my thought always was, and, and maybe this isn't correct, that, you know, all that, that water movement up in the plant is carrying the toxins up to the above ground portion of the plant. And a lot of times I think some literature I recall saying, talking about, you know, during pod and seed fill, which is that that's right what we're running into right now. Yes, yes, that, that that's right. There, there's a couple things. I mean, we usually don't see the leaf symptoms until pod and seed fill. That's typical. And a lot of people think that is due to, as we talked about before, the plant becoming weaker against attackers as it's filling the seed. And, and that, that might be true um, and more susceptible to the disease at that point. Um, and in our research plots, I was in them in Wasika yesterday and uh, we've been irrigating and they've been getting periodic rains there too. We don't see any symptoms yet, um, which is a, a bit concerning because without symptoms, we don't have as much data out of our trials. <laughs> But we're still optimistic that we'll get symptoms in the next couple of weeks. We did not look at roots intently yet while we're in the process of doing that. So I think we the, the disease comes on later. It's definitely favored by heavy rainfalls and kind of sporadically throughout the summer. Um, I don't think we need the real, real heavy ones. We, we did an irrigation study at Wasika one time with drip tubes right along the rows of the plants. And we just supplied a little bit of water just to keep the plants growing nicely. And SDS developed very well, even though it was very, very dry one year we did that. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what, what plays out the next several weeks because it's one of those things, Dean, actually, I've kind of been holding my breath ever since planting season this year because a lot of our beans here in South Central Minnesota, you know, went under cool, wet soils. And there's a lot of compaction out there. And historically, it always seems where I've maybe seen some of the worst symptoms. And so uh, I've joked with a lot of farmers that I've been talking to lately is that, you know, my experience over the years is that whether it be insects or diseases or whatever it might be with a crop, when I'm absolutely certain beyond any doubt whatsoever that something's going to happen, that's usually when it doesn't happen. So it, it will be interesting to see if, that's, if that holds itself true this year or not. Yeah. 
Yeah, these diseases are, are complex. You know, we, we always talk about the disease triangle, right? And plant pathologists do anyway. You know, the presence of the pathogen, the presence of susceptible plant, a favorable environment. And we have a good understanding of what all those are. But there are more variables out there that influence these that we, we can't often explain. So it's not as easy as there's a triangle. It's maybe more like an octagon. We just don't know what those those additional, those five other sides entail, I guess. That's huh? right. That's right. <laughs> so, well, I, you know, we could probably go on for another hour grilling you about some of these plant diseases here, uh, Dean. It's, it's always fascinating to get someone such as yourself that's an expert on all these diseases. And then Ashley and I haven't had a chance to walk fields and see so many things as well and kind of share our, our observations too. But um, you know, Dean, as, as we, we kind of close things out, you know, what else do you think farmers should be looking for over the, the coming weeks? Uh, that, that's a good question. I mean, it's general scouting of the crop where, where it's possible and feasible. You know, the, the unfortunate thing is with most of these diseases, with the exception of some of the corn leaf diseases, you know, we, we, we have limited options for managing them at, at this time of the year. Um, one more disease I'll mention for soybean I, that we've been trying to watch for is frog eye leaf spot. Now, there is a leaf disease that certainly has been spreading and becoming more common in Minnesota over the past five to seven years. And it's favored by, by wet conditions too. And so we're kind of trying to keep a track on that and see where that's developing. Because in the southern central part of the U.S., that's a pretty significant problem in many areas. And so I just want to mention that. And then back, back to corn tar spot a little bit. You know, we're really trying, as as you are with your company, trying to track where this is and where the risk is, right? And now we knew it was in St. Cloud last year or near there. Um, it's it's I think it's going to be important for the future trying to figure out where that gets established. So scouting now through the end of the season is going to be really valuable to help us understand where that's developing and where the risks might be in the future. You bet. You bet, Dean. And, you know, I had a chance, you know, I think while, while Ashley was asking you a question, I, I had an opportunity to try to do a Google search on, you were talking about getting those maps and, and my ears aren't very good. So it's actually uh, ipmcorn.ipmpipe.org. And, and I, for whatever reason, I thought I was hearing you say type. So I had, to, of course, I had to go on my phone here and see. And it, it's it's pretty cool where you can select your disease and then it shows you a an updated map and then you can actually download those maps. So that's kind of a pretty cool tool out there for folks who want to kind of yeah. track um, the latest on, on some of these diseases and in particular tar spot. And so are those before Ashley kind of closes things out? So then how is that designated? Are those samples that have been submitted to an individual such as yourself um is, is that what, what what this ties into or or anything from any companies such as pioneer or others that might be making some observations actually there's been some of both some of both it, it needs to come from a, a reliable source that that is essentially there, there are various people that can approve that final posting or highlighting of the county and I'm one of those approvers but there are other approvers too so the main point is it has to come from somebody that is uh I, I guess kind of kind of vetted and, and known to be reliable in diagnosis <laughs> well that's <laughs> good to hear that's good by to somebody hear. else 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Ashley, maybe you can kind of wrap things up and uh, we'll let Dean get on with the rest of his day. I really appreciate you joining us, Dean. But uh, Ashley, why don't you share some of the key takeaways that you got from our talk with Dean? Yeah, you bet. Okay. So we started off with tar spot and just um, in review, acknowledging that we have if any in in our area that that Jay and I cover, it's very low levels um, at this time. So what we visually observed has been on on my eastern side thus far, very very low levels. Um, we will have conditions as we cool off here, and if we have the moisture, we we may have conditions where we'll see a little more. So it's a great opportunity for scouting just to see um, where where the presence of that pathogen is. Um, then we moved on to gray leaf spot. So we are seeing a little bit of gray leaf spot in the field, but as we as we cool off here, if you look at the forecast, we're having a little bit of a cool off. Hopefully we'll we'll maintain conditions that aren't appropriate for the continued development of gray leaf spot. With that, maybe we'll see a little bit more northern, um, but we're getting down the chute here. Most of the corn that I've looked at is R4 dose stage. So we're, we're getting down there um, in, in levels where we're in, in growth stages where we're accruing less and less risk from a percent yield potential um, to be compromised in the presence of disease. So that's a wonderful thing uh, where I, I learned and appreciated the information so much was our conversation on Phytophthora. Um, how illuminating for me, Dean, I, I appreciated that so much. So in review, as we look at, at the pathogen, there is evidence that across the Midwest that the 1K gene is, is no longer as effective as we once experienced it to be. Um, so looking at other gene opportunities, would be valuable for for our customers, for seed companies. Um, granted, you know there was a lot of emphasis on 1K at, at one point because it was known to be so effective. So a lot of your soybeans will have 1K for managing this disease. We'd like to pair a, um, a seed treatment um, with a fungicide component to control the disease. Um, and Dean, can you remind us um, for those two genes, which genes did you highlight for um, good phytophthora tolerance? No, that's three and six. Three and six. Okay. And, and right off the top of my head, I can't remember which of those is shown to be better. It might be three on a wide scale basis. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I did a quick scan through I had a, a little bit of information in front of me on our varieties, and I see we have some 3A, um, 3A genes here, and oftentimes we've paired that with a 1K. Um, so that's something interesting we'll, we'll do our, our homework on. Um, and then we then we discussed SDS, and you know we haven't observed any foliar symptoms of SDS in our area. Jay mentioned that in plant tissue samples, um, there has been some, some SDS identified um, in some of those samples that had been submitted to our lab and the University of Minnesota lab. So we'll keep a keen eye in the next few weeks for foliar symptoms. Uh, but I, I learned a lot, Dean. We so appreciate your time so very much. Um, thank you for the work that you do at the University of Minnesota, helping RMS with information so that we can make better recommendations to our farmers. Um, this has been episode 17 of Your Field is Our Office. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Ashley Storby. You can find Jay on Twitter as well at SeedZeek. And Dean, we would send listeners to your email address to find you. And that is dmalvik, that's spelled D-M-A-L-V-I-C-K at umn.edu. So if you have any follow-up questions for Dean, 
you can find him there. And folks, you can join Jay and me on our next episode as we discuss corn and soybean yield estimates in the Pro Farmer Crop Tour. We'll discuss the behind-the-scenes methodology by which estimates are made and also how samples are selected with our very own Emily Flory Carolyn, a multi-year veteran of the Crop Tour, to walk through how it's done. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 17 of Your Field is Our Office. Until next time, be safe and stay healthy. Thank you.